0: Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast
1: for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship.
0: And now, your host, Jared Van Hees.
2: Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and thank you guys for coming back as we become better habitat managers. Now. We have a great episode for you here. I know I say that all the time, but I mean it. And uh, this one is with Chase Burns. Now, if you've been a long-time listener, you've heard that name before. We had Chase on way back October of 2018, Episode 23, Habitat Podcast, Episode 23. Chase uh, is a realtor. He works at Dogwood Land Management and owns it, actually, he just some stuff for the management and Vantage team. Um, very knowledgeable guy. Uh, very happy to know Chase and, and have really good conversations with Chase when you know when we do talk to him. So this is no different. It Went awesome, and I think that we're talking about some stuff today that's a little bit unique, something we, we haven't covered a lot. We're talking about like ingress and egress access, creating roads on your property. Spending money on things that increase value—trails, um, fire breaks, drainage, and culverts—you know, building driveways—and and a couple stories of how good access on a property that was created by Chase and his team has paid off in killing a big buck uh, for both him and his clients. So, again, really love talking with Chase. This is a great episode. You guys are gonna enjoy it. I promise Uh, it's not the the most flashy subject in the world, but it is great content and we really enjoy talking about it. So Chase Burns, dogwood land management coming on here very soon. Now thank you all who have been leaving us great reviews. Um, You know, we we love you for it and, and we send out some decals if you do. So please click the link below in the show notes, leave us a great review. I'll find you and hook you up. Uh, That you know, extra 30 to 60 seconds if that takes you to do that really helps a lot for us. So thank you for doing that. I'm very excited to launch a new sponsor of the Habitat Podcast. We are partnered up with Exodus Trail Cameras. The boys over at Exodus uh, had us down at the studio last month, recorded a few shows with them uh, on their podcast, on their YouTube, so be sure to go check those out. But we're just pumped because they're a bunch of cool guys. They're a lot You know, like us in terms of just hunting fools and and obsessed and and just really cool and innovative and entrepreneurial the way they run their business. Um, They're a direct-to-consumer trail camera manufacturer and I want to talk about their campaign coming up which is called Velvet Fest. Now, if you guys have followed along with Exodus before, you've probably heard of Velvet Fest, but I'm going to tell you about it here right now. Um, The guys at Exodus, I just got word they're kicking this campaign off, hashtag VelvetFest. If you're not familiar, it's the official start to their deer season, and it helps Exodus get the ball rolling for everyone's summer scouting. Now, I know when it's Velvet Fest, um, everybody might already have their cameras out, but if not, it's time now. Let's get them out and, and start using this hashtag, guys. You're going to be entered into a pretty cool competition here. From July 21st to August 11th, they'll have awesome prizes for people who use the hashtag VelvetFest on social media, you know, if you share your whitetail adventures, you know, trail camera pictures, scouting, etc. Also, if you're in the market for a trail camera, hashtag VelvetFest will be the perfect opportunity to get ready for the season. Exodus will be sending out exclusive savings through their email newsletter throughout the campaign. Now, every single camera order comes with a random prize card. That you'll have to scratch off to reveal the prize. That's something kind of new. I haven't seen that before. It's pretty unique. Um, I've been told that you know, it includes some huge deals, so you won't want to miss out. To sweeten the pot even more, every single order offers you the chance of receiving a limited edition Velvet Fest laser engraved trail camera. If you're the lucky recipient, you'll receive a $1,000 gift card for the Exodus store. $1,000, guys. That's huge. Just for sharing the hat, or sharing and using hashtag VelvetFest. Um, there's a lot more to this campaign, so you just head over to their website and make sure you're on their newsletter because you won't want to miss out on any opportunities, you know, the prizes, the giveaways. If you're not familiar with Exodus, you know, here's the Cliff Notes on their company right here. Over the last six years, Exodus has consistently shown they build quality trail cameras that flat out work, and of course, the best trail camera warranty period. Every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty and even comes with theft and damage coverage. Five years literally, guys, half a decade you'll be covered by the Exodus five-year warranty. But more than likely you won't need it because their cameras are already built to last. Now, if you listen to our episode with Chad Sylvester, we talked about this and their, their business model and their warranty. So be sure to take part, you know, in the Velvet Fest celebration. Be sure to tag us. Hashtag VelvetFest, tag the podcast, tag Exodus. And, you know, we want to see what you guys are up to this summer. So thank you very much. I want to thank um, you you guys for coming back and visiting our website. We've had some more gear sales and some land plan inquiries up there. Um, We're going to southern Indiana this week and uh, also booked one up in uh, eastern New York, up in the mountains. So, guys, we're still adding these on. If you're interested in that service, check us out at habitatpodcast.com slash land plans, and we'll get right back to you. I want to thank Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction, Morris Nursery, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Killer Food Plots, Huntwise, Packer Max Cult of Packers, and Exodus Trail Cameras. All right, enough from me. Let's get Mr. Chase Burns on talking all things habitat and access. All right. We have Brian Hallbly. What's going on, Brian?
0: Good morning. Doing well. How are good, you doing?
2: Good morning. Not bad. Not bad, man. Beautiful day. Um, and I, I know you had a, a good time last night. We'll, we'll get right to that in a, in a second. I want to cover that. And uh, we have a very special returning guest, Mr. Chase Burns. How you doing today, Chase?
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me back on, guys.
2: Of course. Of course. You were way back on. Episode 23. I mean, that was—it feels like a decade ago. That was uh, a long time ago. One of our our better episodes from way back when, discussing edge feathering and all the cool stuff you're doing at at Dogwood. And so glad to have you back. Over 110 episodes later, and uh, yeah, just guys, welcome back.
1: You guys are big to talk about. You've come uh, a long way since then. <laughs>
2: Well, we have come a long way. I don't know if big time's there yet, but we have come a long way. We appreciate that. And, uh, Brian, I wanted to ask you how your night went last night, because you were whooping it up in in Pittsburgh at the, uh, what, Full Draw Film Tour?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that's a uh, film tour. They've been stopping through Pittsburgh here the last few years. Of course, they didn't have one last year, obviously, with COVID and everything, but, uh, it's a good time. It's like a smaller scale of the Badlands Film Festival that we attend when we're at the ATA, but uh good time to catch up with some people I don't get to see all the time and they give away some decent prizes and a lot of charity work. So, yeah, just uh cool that they get to come pretty close to where I'm at. Yeah, was it was it pretty good film? Good entertainment? Yeah, very good. Yeah, those guys always do a great job. In fact, I can't remember the fellow's name that um, does a lot of the film and he, he's always entered them in the badlands, too, so you would recognize them but uh yeah, pretty good quality, pretty good stories and uh man, we always talk about trying to put one of those together, but as the listeners know, seeing my youtube stuff i've 've got a little bit more to learn so
2: <laughs> yeah i think um are you are you thinking of uh Jason Matzinger is that who you're thinking of yes, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, he's pretty he's pretty good at what he does there. So uh, glad Absolutely. you glad you had a good time.
0: Yeah, for sure. Appreciate it.
2: So we got Chase on here today, and uh, we're going to talk about a couple of different things involving you know access on your property, um, ingress and egress, um, all kinds of a good infrastructure type stuff, and a couple of examples of how that can pay off for you. But before that, Chase, why don't you uh, Give us a little background on who you are, and just in case nobody goes back to 23, and then, um, you know, what you been up to, man? Looks like life's been good. Sure.
1: Yeah. No, it is. We're doing real well. Um, so, let's see. I'm located in the west-central part of Illinois. Uh, some people call it Northwest Illinois. I mean, we're not the Golden Triangle. We're just about an hour and a half or two hours kind of north of that. Um, I'm a little bit more like farm country, but that's, uh, that's okay with me. I'm kind of a farm boy. So we have some really good deer hunting, uh, good turkey hunting, a little bit of upland is kind of patchy in this area, but overall we got really good habitat just on a few ribbons, uh, of, uh, watershed areas that kind of wiggle their way through flat farm ground. Uh, so that's kind of where I come from. I spent, you know, most of my life here. Um, went to Southern Illinois University. Studied wildlife biology down there and uh, did a lot of construction stuff after that and kind of got into real estate by buying houses, fixing up, doing that kind of stuff along the way and making money doing that. Um, And then been fully self employed for maybe about eight years now and kind of jumped into real estate with both feet uh, with an auctioneer's and a managing broker's license. So I sell uh, specifically land, rural properties. Uh, I sell a lot of farm ground, mixed properties, sell Uh, A lot of hunting ground, recreational-type farms, some of them big, some small, uh, cabins, lodges, lakes, all that kind of stuff. And then I also sell things like farmhouses, you know, just uh, homes on acreage out in the country. Uh, Through getting into real estate, I sold a couple of properties to some guys who uh, were absentee landowners, and they were asking all kinds of habitat-related questions and just kind of kept feeding them information, feeding them resources, and they just, by the time we closed on it, they are like, man, you really know a lot about this stuff. Uh, I need to find somebody to do some of this work on my property. And they're like, who would you recommend? And you know, in my area, at least, there wasn't anybody to recommend. It's like, I mean, they needed uh, forest management plans implemented. They needed uh, CRP programs, you know, established. So they you know, trees and grasses planted. And they wanted to make access improvements and build roadways through the properties and put up uh, pole buildings or whatever. And they didn't know any local contractors to do any of that kind of stuff. So I just started doing it. And uh, it didn't take too long before that was, I guess, that little side hustle just kind of spawned its own business and became Dogwood Land Management. So those are, uh, those are my two businesses, and that's what I do full-time for a living. Um, we do a little bit of uh, habitat consulting work. Um, I would never claim to be a hunting consultant, I'm not that guy that's got a trophy room full of Boone and Crockett and 200 plus inch deer, shot a fair share of really nice deer along the way, but my focus has always been more on managing wildlife habitat, benefiting as many different species as I can, uh, got a couple young boys that are getting into hunting now and getting them out on their deer, that's just kind of where my priorities are. So, well, I love to chase big white tails just as much as any other deer hunter that's, you know, got it in his blood. But um, I don't devote my entire season to trying to tag one big buck. I try to enjoy the ride along the way as much as I can, and uh, God's blessed me with a, a lot of good opportunities to do that. So that was that was probably longer than you wanted, but <laughs> that's the nutshell of where I'm at in life yeah. and how I'm doing.
2: Yeah, that was actually a really great background. Nice job. I think you covered like I don't even have any questions now. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> covered it all. Um, and and yeah, you uh, you do do a, a good job. You're like the perfect guest for this type of podcast, and and you killed some slammers along the way too. So, um, you manage your your own ground where you live, right? I think we talked about that on, on the last podcast. You do fairly well there too.
1: it's for a small piece, it has treated us extremely well. And, you know, I mean, I think I've fallen into the same, uh, I guess, class with a, a lot of working class people that when they do finally buy a piece of ground, it's probably not going to be a two or three or 500 acre piece, uh, at least not to get you started. So our home farm is 55 acres. Um, it is mostly wildlife habitat. We have a small home site and a couple acres of pasture for horses that, uh, you know, my wife, that's kind of always been her passion. But the rest of the property is uh, devoted to habitat in one form or another. So, yeah, I mean, we do a lot of work here on the home piece, and uh, we're just off of a really productive watershed. So we have good wildlife population. We've got a lot of deer. Um, there's a lot of larger, properties in the area so we kind of benefit from some of that and through pushing uh quality deer management out there in this local area we kind of have built a mentality that uh they know what i'm doing on my property i don't tell anybody else what to do on theirs but they understand that if we all kind of work together and we're passing some of the younger bucks and things like that we're going to have a lot of mutual benefit from it so it's pretty good here
2: no it sure sounds like it I, i i wish it was uh easy to get all your neighbors on board, and, and good for you for, for leading by example. It's, it's always important. Um, yeah, that's that really pays off when you just get, get in a good neighborhood or form the good neighborhood and off that watershed. I mean, that's dynamite. So congrats on your success so far, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate it. So we so got you on to cover a couple things that uh, – you know, will make a good property hunt better and even add value to your land, um, improve huntability, but might not be the most glamorous <laughs> subject matter, uh, in your words there. Uh, what are we going to cover today that, that you think is super important and, and we agree?
1: Yeah, so one of, one of my favorite things to do on a piece of property is not like the building a micro plot or... Uh, you know, digging water holes and, and doing all those like really cool stuff, the stuff that makes really awesome, uh, YouTube content. <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> those are, those are fun to do, but the, the most impactful, uh, in my opinion, improvements that people can usually do to a piece of property is, uh, creating better access. To, uh, to be able to get throughout the property, both just on foot when you're hunting and, you know, quiet ingress, egress, that sort of thing, or uh, with equipment, being able to get a tractor or a skid steer or a log skidder and things like that into remote kind of rugged corners of the property um, that allow you to manage the whole property and really make tremendous improvements that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So putting in the infrastructure, the road system, trail system, whatever, to get you around a piece of property is going to add a lot of uh, marketable value, resale value, whatever you want to say. You're going to build equity in a property by doing some of those improvements. Um, but the reason for that is because they let you utilize so much more of the property. And a lot of people, if they just they think they buy some precious gem of a, a kind of Rugged piece of habitat that they don't want to spoil it by uh, building a trail system or whatever in it that might invite, uh, you know, their kids or or somebody or a neighbor or anybody really to like yep. ride their quads around on it, and that they're just going to ruin the whole piece. That they're going to scare all the deer out of a farm by doing those things. Uh, and in my opinion, I mean, sure, yeah, if you don't police that and that becomes a major issue on your property, then yeah, it could be pretty damaging. But Those things are usually pretty easy to nip in the bud or to keep from happening altogether. You have to understand the purpose of your trail system, your road system through the property, and uh, don't abuse it. Just use it for its intended use and not all season long. And Now, because I can get my ranger all the way back within 200 feet of my stand, I'm going to drive it all the way back there. It's like, no, (laughs) don't be foolish, you know, deer still are aware of what you're doing on the property. This just lets you get in and out with it in a much less impactful way. Um, and, I mean, I, on our home farm, for example, that was one of the first things that I worked on once I had the big enough equipment to do it was really build the road system, trail system to get around the property and still working on it. Always just kind of improving it here and there when I have a little time or a little more material left over or just whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I haven't shot a deer in the last five or six years here that I couldn't just walk up to the house, jump in my Bobcat, and drive the track loader right back to within probably 50 feet of where the buck laid or doe or whatever. Drag it into the bucket. And it beats even getting it onto a quarter of a ranger. I don't even have to lift it up. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> drag it right into the bucket, and away I go.
0: That's a um, veteran move people, there.
1: Yeah, it's not, Dave, it's not like you're a
2: lazy guy. It's just you No, hey, you Dave, we're smarter. smart, not hard. <laughs> exactly Exactly. and
1: i mean i know i'm, I'm blessed to have a, a machine like that and a lot of people don't um you know have have even a, a compact tractor or something with a loader on it or whatever but uh, if you if you have a piece of ground that you're working on most of the people by the time they actually have their own chunk of dirt that they're able to do some of these improvements on you're probably going to acquire some piece of equipment uh and you know tailor your trail system uh to, it doesn't have to be built like an interstate highway if all you're ever going to take down it is a quad or a UTV. Sure. But I guess one thing I would caution or tell people is that if you're spending the money to have a contractor come in with an excavator or dozer or, uh, you know, a track machine with a fecon head, horse remulcher or something like that, um, think bigger than whatever your current capability is. Um, it, it will pay dividends in the end to. Build something a little bigger, a little more beyond what your current means are because you're probably going to grow into it. And then you don't have to pay somebody to come back later to keep expanding that. And and if you are able to do it yourself, you know, with a chainsaw and you rent a mini X on a weekend here or there or whatever to uh, tear out some stumps and, and do some improvements, you know, you, you can improve – the trail system, get one established to begin with. Maybe it's just a foot, you know, a pedestrian, like, walking path at first. And then as you go, maybe you need it to, like, I'd really like to be able to get my pickup back there so I can haul out firewood if those trees fall over my trail and stuff. i got to cut them up. You know, it's uh, Rome wasn't built in a day, so it's okay right. to take baby steps into these types of projects. But if you're hiring some heavier equipment to come in and do it, then do it right and, you know, bite the bullet. A little bit, I guess, is what I'd say because it will pay a lot more return than what you're probably initially thinking it will.
2: Yeah, that's that's some solid advice right off the bat here. So thank you for that. I think, um, you know, I can I can relate there. I I backed off and have like one access trail on my on my one south side just for me for. For hunting access and, and that's really about it. I don't want to go into my property, but if I could and take a dozer and go up the other north side too just to have that access there for different wind directions or, or fence inspection or whatever. Um, I'd like to hear about your property and how you designed your trail system or network of trails. Are you all the way around the borders only? Or are you... Directly down the middle, a little bit of both. Let's hear your your mapping, if you will.
1: So so my home farm uh, is basically a long rectangle. It's half a mile long. Um, and Like I said, 55 acres, so it's not that deep north to south. But uh, most of the thick timber is all in the west end of it, and our main access point is on the southeast corner.
0: It's just so like my property, first thing literally. I did <laughs>
1: Literally the same yeah. thing. Well, cool. So, first thing I did was say, I want access all the way down the north side of the property. There was already a trail there. It wasn't a great one, and it didn't go all the way, but it was, there was an existing trail there. And I wanted that same kind of layout all the way along the south boundary. And I tried to use, basically, the heart of our property as a sanctuary. Um, and, you know, we've done a lot of habitat improvements in there, but I very, very rarely Ever hunt on the interior of our timber? Um, I maybe have one stand right now. There might still—I don't think there might be two out there. But I that's how little I use them, guys. Like I mean, I hung one of them has been there for like six years, and I go back <laughs> once in the summer each year and just kind of check on it and redo some straps or replace the sticks or uh, you know take it and move it or put a new one up. I had to replace it once a couple of years ago, but but I don't really touch that location. It's just in a it's in a super hot spot where you know there's a couple days a year you can get in there and get away with that kind of intrusion. Or man, that's when that you know the buck has really got one, uh, got a doe sequestered kind of in the middle of uh, this thicket. And sometimes you got to go in there and get a little bit closer. So I have a couple of setups for that sort of scenario if I needed to use them. But uh, north access, anytime we have southerly winds, I walk in. Along the north trail, I set up in one of the pinches or funnels that I've created coming into and out of the interior of my property, and I just hunt on those according to wind direction and whatever my trail cameras tell me, one of the bigger deer that I'm after, which trail is he primarily using? And then I just kind of focus on that with the right southerly wind conditions. Wind shifts out of the north or northwest or something like that, I'm going to use my south access trail, walk all the way along my south boundary and let my scent Cone kind of blow out over my neighbors or over the adjacent ag field or whatever, and then basically just trying to uh, hunt smart enough that the deer that are bedded in the interior of my property are oblivious to my coming and going. So even if I don't happen to connect or haven't uh, have uh, you know have a direct experience with the deer that I'm after in that particular sit. I came, I hunted, I left, and he was none the wiser, didn't know that I was ever there. So basically, uh, those are the north and south trails are like the main arteries that let me get in and get out of probably a dozen different setups on this farm. Now, I do have interior trail systems in between those two that basically are uh, like connective uh, blood vessels from those main arteries that kind of Feed deer traffic to and from bedding locations, um, central part of the sanctuary to other auxiliary like doe group bedding areas, and then uh, out to my main trails where I've created pinches with screening and log jams and just kind of created those funnels that are maybe 20, 20 yards wide or whatever to put them within bow range. So those are basically like trails that I make with the skid steer. I usually clean them up like once a year from, you know, blowdowns and stuff like that. But they are not like well-groomed hiking paths or I don't plant those with uh, clover and chicory or, you know, do anything like that. The the point is basically just to make a path of least resistance to help deer get to and from using those uh, secluded kind of secretive trails that are, you know, They don't have sacrificed their security by using those, and they're very inviting paths for them to just hop on and cut straight from A to B. And it makes their movement that much more predictable. The other thing that it does is if you're hunting over one of those funnels and get a nice buck that comes through and you stick him with an arrow and he goes running back into the middle of the sanctuary and expires back there, after you've blood trailed him and figured out where he went, oh, yep, I need to get in there, you can drive your ranger or your, uh, you know, utility tractor or whatever, you know, with a loader or something, and and drive one of those trails to get really close to where that deer is, drag it out, load it up, and you're out of there. And honestly, guys, this is like uh, goes along the same thought train as, say, somebody who says, hey, I only check my trail cameras from my tractor. You ever heard somebody say that? Oh, yeah. So, you know, some people swear by that or they say, I only ever, you know, I might take my Ranger back there right up to the trail cameras. Other people, they spray down, they sneak in like a ninja to try to swap out trail camera cards. And that's great if you can get away with it or if the topography and the, you know, vegetation and whatever, that's the only way it allows you to get to a particular trail camera setup. But when you're setting up trail cameras on these funnels and on the trail system that you created, in my opinion, the best way to ever check those is by using a pickup or your tractor or whatever. Take that back there because it's so much uh, less intrusive than if you're walking back there on foot. If they're not used to you walking back there daily, then when a person comes walking down one of these pads and you bump a deer or they smell you or whatever, you're laying uh, a, a much bigger yellow if not red flag for that deer then if you use that piece of equipment that that trail was built for and access your cameras that way. So I'm not, like, I hate, I mean hate, to creep into one of my sanctuaries, blood trailing a deer, but I'll jump into Bobcat and go drive right down the trail, (laughs) right up to it, and drag it into the bucket, and out I go. And, you know, the deer will hear that machine coming for a good long way. They don't perceive it as a threat. And yeah, they, they will get up and move out of its way and shift over to another part of the property while you're in there. But the minute I pull back out of there, I've had deer come back in front of a trail camera five minutes after I drive through there with the bobcat. So it's, um, it, it allows you to get in there and do some of those things with a piece of equipment. And it does not disturb or blow out the deer in my experience to the extent that it would if you were hiking through there on foot
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. and uh, I've definitely seen that in action personally, and we always hear lots of stories about people using some type of machinery. and I, I think you make a great point there. You know, when they can hear that coming for a long way, it's they're not being surprised and scared like a like a predator would be for them. So it definitely makes a lot of sense. And uh, I was just watching a uh, video from Dan Infalt. He was baiting bears at this spot. You know, you're carrying heavy things of bait in the, to bait a bear, you're making all kinda of noise, those deer are gonna hear you coming. Well, he started having this giant two hundred inch buck showing up every time he would dump all that donuts and, and bread and everything. So that's just another example of, you know, them being able to hear you come and you're not gonna you're not gonna spook them out of there.
1: Yeah. And I, it, it may be different, uh, in different areas if you know, if you're in farm country, you know, like I think, you know, most of our property sounds like our you're close to agricultural activity. You you at least have people, you know, whether it's wheat or corn or beans or uh, hay fields or whatever. There's a fair amount of tractor activity in in my area, especially in, you know combines, and all that sort of stuff. The adjacent properties uh, get a lot more of that kind of activity than than even than mine does. Sure. So. Deer are more accustomed to it, and they know farmers aren't, you know, typically the ones that are stopping the machine and get off and shoot at them. So it's, uh, it, it is probably different here, you know, in, in the Midwest where I'm at or maybe where you guys are too, but then it would be if we were in like, uh, you know, the Appalachians or place where there's very little agricultural activity. There might be some loggers, you know, here and there whatever, um, some skitters and heavy equipment that would do that kind of activity. But that's a lot less frequent, um, a lot more intermittent and sporadic and less predictable about where that stuff's happening. Good point. So I, I think deer gets pretty uh, accustomed to uh, equipment noise in agricultural areas, and maybe that helps too. But Yeah, for guess, sure. Uh, Back to what the the road system is or how I actually, like, what we do as far as building it, Um, we have a fair amount of topography on our property. It's not, you know, it's not straight up and down. It's not like, you know, parts of Pike or Fulton County, Illinois, if you guys have ever hunted there, that, you know, super rugged and 100 to 225-foot elevation change from one ridge to the next hollow or something like that. I mean, ours is rolly, but it's not that steep. But still, you've got a couple of ditches, uh, some creeks and stuff to cross with those straight east and west trails or kind of, you know, perimeter uh, boundary trails. So the way that we go about uh, implementing creek crossings or ditches is, is different. Uh, it, it's kind of a case-by-case basis. The first thing you got to consider is what type of equipment do you need to or want to be able to get back there and how frequently are you going to do it. Uh, the next thing you need to consider is what is your budget? Because you don't need to build a bridge uh, if you're only needing to get some equipment back there very occasionally and you're not driving trucks or, you know, anything bigger back there. It's a lot of times uh, a tube, a culvert, you know, double wall uh, plastic tube of the appropriate, you know, diameter is all that you really need. But a lot of times, so we have had mixed success with culverts and if a lot of people have tried that or they're like yeah I'm looking on I I talk to guys now and then who are uh hunting on you know family farm or maybe they're just starting out and they got a little chunk of ground of their own and they don't have a lot of money to implement in the trail system like I really like to be able to get a machine back there across that that creek or that ditch but I've been looking on marketplace and trying to find like an old uh tube or culvert that I could put in there and rent a machine for a weekend and do it it's like that's not a bad way to go, but you need first thing you need to understand is your soils. If you are in, uh, if it's down in this bottom, they've got, let's say it's a lot of silty loam, really kind of fluffy, uh, eroded soil that came off the hillsides and farm fields and whatever and got deposited in this creek bottom, and you dig that kind of stuff out and throw a tube in there and then try to pack it back in, it's going to wash out, if not in the first year, within the first three and, and we've had that happen, thought that, oh, this will hold. You know, this is pretty decent. And then you still get you get a couple big rains and some fast-moving current, and it washes them out. So culverts mean more maintenance. They will get you across it in short term and pretty fast and easy to slap one in and be like, yeah, I got a trail. Great, good to go. We can get back here. But they're probably long-term, they're probably not going to last. Um, most of them don't, unless you have really good – of clay which would be really poor soil <laughs> but if you have <laughs> clay that will hold water and you could like build a pond dam with it then yeah you know dig that out with a mini or an excavator or something and or even a loader bucket on a tractor or skid steer if you can do that uh and roll a tube in there and then pack it in with some of that clay and yeah it should seal good and, and you might have really good success with it but be be smart enough or cognizant enough of what kind of soil you're trying to put that type of crossing in as to whether or not it's going to hold for you because there's nothing worse, you know, than spending, you spend a weekend doing it and you spend 1500 or $2,500 or something that was all your habitat improvement budget for the year, maybe, or something like that. And then find out that, you know, 18 months later it's washed out and your tubes laying 30 feet down the creek bed and you got to try to drag it back and do it again. Yeah. So in those types of scenarios, um, And we we have had that kind of happen here on my my own farm even. One of our creek crossings is all clay. No problem. Put a tube in there, pack it in. It's not going anywhere. Two hills over, you get into a bottom where there's a bunch of silt that came off of a farm field just up the further uh, up this little drainage. And it's all deposited in this bottom. And you dig and it's five feet deep of just black dirt. Well, it's great for growing something. Terrible for trying to put a tube in. So... What you have to do when you have that kind of scenario is a different strategy, different approach. And you could put in a bridge if you really needed one. But if it's very occasional use and, you know, it isn't something that has water running through it all year long or that type of thing, which this one doesn't, you know, it's just uh, for a couple weeks after some big rains and stuff, it'll have water running through it. But the rest of the time it might just be kind of soft um, and the ditch will go dry. So in those – We just excavate out a reasonable slope on both sides so that you could drive right down through the bottom of it and back up the other side. Um, Cheap way to do it is to talk with a couple local contractors and see if anybody's tearing out any sidewalks or uh, got any recycled concrete or brick foundation or something like that that you could maybe get access to clean fill like that. Um, And we've used, you know, a lot of old pavers and things like that and just, Clean out the bottom, but if you're still in soil and you're not hitting, you know, uh, say, glaciated debris, any, you know, size of rock or bedrock or anything solid in the bottom of the creek, then you're going to have to put something solid in it if you're going to try to keep driving through it. You start out with something big and coarse like riprap or papers or, you know, something that's three to five, six inch in diameter. Um, Put that in there drive over it a little bit kind of pack it in with the machine. Then you can put in something a little bit bigger, build yourself a base first. Uh, another thing that we've done on top of a base like that is used concrete cakes. So like somebody's needed sidewalk pulled out. Uh, I've actually got a project with uh, the church that we, we attend. They're getting ready to replace a uh, sidewalk on the back of the church and I'm on the board of trustees. So they're trying to figure out who's going to do that. And I was like, I Maybe could bring a machine over and pick up those cakes if somebody's got a trailer to load them on and they're gonna end up here, and I'm gonna end up tearing them back with a set of forks and just dropping them uh dropping them one at a time and just laying like pavers right across this crossing to just kind of reinforce and make it a nicer the water's gonna run right across it
0: and Very all cool. you're doing Very is
1: basically cool. creating something like some people will call it an Arkansas or Missouri crossing um uh, that's how they do it in townships down there. A lot of times, instead of putting a culvert or a bridge over every little creek, they will just excavate it out and with a small dozer or something, and then just pour concrete right across the bottom and you just drive right through the creek. So, um, that's kind of a poor man's crossing, I guess if you want to call it that. <laughs> yeah. Guys, this is habitat work. That is as good as it needs to be. Right. It needs right. to allow you to get to and from without getting stuck and without, you know, rutting something up and causing big erosion problems and whatever. Um, and those are low maintenance. They are, in my opinion, that's probably the best way to go. If it is uh, not the type of creek, if it's a big enough creek that it's got a couple foot of water in it and it's running pretty much all year long every year. Yeah. Okay. You're going to do something more serious than that. But a lot of these little drainage ditches and stuff that we're trying to get, you know, that cut off that, uh, little honey hole corner of your property that you'd love to have a tree stand on or a place that's got, man, that's got some really nice walnuts back there, but you just can't hardly really get anything back there to them to, to uh, skid them out of there. So you never harvest the timber on this part of the property or whatever. Um, those are cheap ways to do it that don't require any uh, terribly expensive equipment to either rent or hire done or, or to buy. And, and, You know, those are massive improvements, both for uh, allowing ingress, egress for hunting and allowing you to get in and haul a deer out after you harvested one, to get in and harvest timber or to drive a tractor back there to mow a couple of trails to uh, help further concentrate deer traffic in front of a funnel location or something like that. All of that, because it adds all of that value to you as a user of the land, it also adds marketable value to the property should you ever go to sell it sure so if you spend yeah. two thousand dollars over a couple of years doing little creek crossing improvements like that and having a decent trail system, the difference when you go to sell that farm with the trail system or without it is i mean it's staggering it's it's absolutely there's no comparison really i mean it's um it will make the properties show so much better so that when we show properties like that and you're able to just hop on a ranger and tour an extensive trail system, first thing it does is the trail system makes a 20-acre makes a property feel like an 80-acre property. Right. And I mean that wholeheartedly. I've shown 80-acre pieces that were so thick and brushy and hilly and creeks and whatever that like you're climbing through and trying to cross and whatever. You can't see much of the property. You can't get to much of the property. It's not very usable. And it makes, you know, you'll try to travel around and show a property like that, and you're in and out of it because you really couldn't look at that much of it. And um, you show a 40-acre piece the next day to the same buyer that's got a trail system, and it feels so much bigger because what's there is accessible. And, I mean, it, you know, they are always drawn to the ones that are more accessible.
0: Yeah, I I like your tips there about getting creative with different things cuz a, a lot of guys doing this are it's a second uh property and they might not be living on it they have a budget that they have to stick to. Uh even even simple things like, you know, a lot of times you buy these old farms, there's materials laying around everywhere. I know my last 40 acre piece They had a couple of huge piles of uh, rocks just from the farmers clearing the fields for years and years and years and years. And I would just pull up with my side-by-side and, you know, fill up the bed, maybe make two or three trips, do that a couple of times over the summer, and you can get one of those crossings done pretty quick that way and cheaply too. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Use whatever is available to you there. It um, doesn't have to cost a fortune. You don't have to go out and spend, I mean, to buy a new 20-foot tube that's uh, 24 inches in diameter, Not I mean, cheap. you might right now steel is high, but, I mean, you're probably going to spend at least 12 or $1,300 on something sure. like that. And, and that's just the tube. And then you got to get equipment back there to prep the area and get it packed in and whatever.
2: Uh, yeah, that's actually some good good advice. I actually got a hold of a gravel pit. And what they'll do, they'll also grab um, asphalt millings from grinding up old roads to put new roads down. And I had a couple loads dumped at my property to form like a parking area, like a parking lot. And um, like 300 bucks, said and done. And have a great, great, you know, almost like a paved area now. And and then, Brian, you, I mean, on your 40, you mentioned, you went, you went and added in a whole, a gate, a whole driveway, you had a... A mini excavator back there doing a whole, what was that, east side access road up your whole farm?
0: Yeah, so I was fortunate to have a power line that went down the east border all the way. My property was a long rectangle, sort of like Chase described his. And uh, there was already a culvert at the road for the uh, right away for the power line. So that made it easy, and I, I contacted the power company, and they're like, sure, yeah, you could put a driveway in. We'll send you a, a list of things you can and can't do. But I was able to put a gravel driveway through there. And then the way that my 40 laid out, it was sort of a uh, farm fields along the road, block of timber, and then another section of farm fields in the back. So I had a friend of mine, and, and this is a tip for you guys out there listening and gals, that... Uh, know, any any friends that you have with with machines, if you're not in a hurry to do something, they might have a couple of days where they have some downtime between jobs that you just say, hey, I got this project going on. If you want to come out anytime you want, they they appreciate making a few bucks to pay for their machine and their time and everything. And a buddy of mine came up with his mini excavator, and if if you get somebody that knows what they're doing, they can get a lot done in, in just eight hours even.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had like a whole wet wet ditch running up that side with that um, power line, and then you guys ended up what, like two birds of one stone, you dug out the ditch slash built the road with the, the mud and the dirt, right?
0: Yeah, so that little strip that went along the uh, first block of timber to get back to the backfields uh, would hold a lot of water because that farm was pretty flat. There wasn't much topography. And uh, during a dry spell, absolutely, just what you talked about. He'd he'd come in and dig a ditch on both sides and just build up the center. So, like you mentioned, killing two birds with one stone. And next thing you know, I was able to get tractors and and, uh, equipment, even my pickup truck, if I had to get back there with it. it, And just made it real simple.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I would say... One other thing to consider on these trail systems is, like we talked about, uh, how often it's going to be used or how heavy the traffic is. You kind of have your main trails that you know uh, anytime you come in and out of the heart of the farm or part of the farm or whatever, you're going to be on this road, and then from there it kind of branches out. The smaller the artery, uh, the less attention it probably needs or the the you know less often it's going to be traveled and the less... Uh, money you're gonna wanna spend on some of the crossings or improvements to get you to certain areas. So, kinda, there kinda has to be a minimum level, I guess, is, you know, know what type of equipment you might want to get back there and then figuring out what it takes to get that back there. And then spending some of the, uh, it, some of the real money, I guess I would say, in the areas that are a lot more critical or more essential. So when you map out your property and you're kind of drawing out your trail system and saying, these are my main paths where I'm really going to, I need back there all the time on this or that to plant food plots or to do this or that, you know, to move blinds, to uh, spray fields, to mow my trails. And then from here, those are, that's category A trails. And then category B are going to be ones that you're only on, uh, you know, half the time when you're back there with the tractor or whatever. And then category C trails are going to be like, I really only use that if I've got to get in there to like once a year, cut up uh, some down trees or something that are blocking the trails, keep them open, and then maybe once uh, late summer on my utility tractor with a bush hog just to kind of mow, just to keep brush and young trees and stuff from coming up to reclaim that trail and make it, you know, part of the timber again. So know what uh, – where your main priorities are and then that's where the emphasis is going to be an improvement anytime you have a big piece of equipment on the property um, one other like thing I guess I want to talk about while we're talking about roads is a lot of people if like you talked Jared you talked about your parking area and uh, an area that you're maybe going to want to bring in you know not just a, a four-wheel drive pickup but be able to have the wife drive her SUV or her car out there and meet, you know, or do some. Or someday you're going to build on this property, right? So you're thinking ahead, like I said, and, and not just being kind of nearsighted and saying, "Well, I just need a trail here right now." Is I've sold properties to people that bought it as a hunting farm, but thought someday I'm going to build a pond right here, and I'll have driveway come back into here, and then I'm going to build a house or a cabin or something overlooking that that pond that I'm going to build. Awesome, you got a plan. So they come in immediately after purchase and they pay a, a company to come in with, you know, semi loads or tandem loads of rock and just start driving, you know, they just mow down the tall grass and start spreading the rock right on it and building their driveway. And that's a huge mistake in my oh, opinion. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, but a lot of people, man, I've been on a ton of properties where people did just exactly that and hindsight is 2020. 20, 20, most of them, you know, never do quite understand or figure out, because they don't know anything about road construction. So they're kind of just like, well, I don't understand why am I, I keep losing all my rock. i got to keep adding rock to it every year, and there's soft, squishy spots every year. There's potholes, and it's just, you know, it's a muddy mess, and I can't, you know. They, they didn't lay it out right because they were short-sighted and thought, if I throw rock on it, I can drive on it right now without getting my truck stuck. But once you put rock on it and you start mixing that into the soil and you just created an absolute mess, it's like it's really hard and would be really expensive then to tear that stuff out and do it right later. So um, lay in the groundwork. If you're going to put in something that's going to someday become a permanent, like, say, gravel roadway with CA6 uh, or driveway to a future home site or something like that, the way to do that is to – Scrape off the sod, at least the top three or four inches. uh, Get all the roots and everything out of whatever type of grass or vegetation is growing there. Level that bed as good as you can. Ideally, yeah, you'd compact it first, but even if you're not doing that, at a minimum, scrape off, level it, and staple down geotextile fabric. Geotextile fabric, people are like, oh, gosh, yeah, but that's just expensive. It costs quite a bit of money. It's like it comes in usually in like a 12 half or 13-foot wide roll, which is about as wide as what you'd want, you know, a single-lane gravel driveway coming into a property. And uh, you will – I have put geotextile down and then immediately dumped rock over the top of it and had them bring in tandems and dump it when everything around the ground was soft. I mean, softer than I wanted it to be. But without that geotextile fabric, all the rock that I just put on it By the time I finished the building project right there, that rock would have been gone. Like, we would have mashed it into the earth, and it would have been like it was never there. And we would have had to put that much more rock on top of that again. So it's like the expense of putting down a a geofabric from the start is going to pay huge dividends. Like, our driveway, we put in here nine, almost ten years ago now. And now this is our full-time residence. At that point, it wasn't yet. Um, but we have only put rock on it a handful of times since then. And it's just, you know, I mean, you put five, six, seven inches, uh,
2: while Chase grabs the dog there, that's actually a huge tip. Brian, I've never never even heard of that. Have you heard of that fabric before?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically like, like a uh, landscaping fabric that you might put under mulch or something in your flower beds, but it's a heavier duty and, and just on a bigger scale. Okay.
2: Yeah, I just Googled it here, and it looks, it's almost like a net, it seems, to catch some of your stuff from sinking away.
0: Yeah, and, and that's huge no matter what you're doing. If, if you're going to go that route or if you have soil that maybe is a little rockier that can handle, you want to you wanna start with a good base like the driveway that I did we put some larger, almost like fifth-size rocks down first, let that settle, drove on that for a few years, and then put some lighter gravel on top of it later on. So it, you just want to have a good foundation, whether it's with that fabric or bigger rocks before you get to the smaller stuff that you're going to drive on eventually.
1: Yeah, for sure. Bigger rocks are not a bad way to go if you want to start with something like that and then uh, grade up to CA6 to kind of finish it some sort of fines in it so that it will compact and fill in a lot of those voids. But um, the bigger rock, honestly, it depends on the base that you have underneath of it. If you're in Missouri and there's a lot of rock in the soil anyway, um, that's not a bad way to go. But the deeper your topsoil and subsoil layers are, the more shifting and movement there's going to be in those bigger rocks. And especially when the ground is really wet, if you drive anything heavy over it, they're going to end up with some soft spots where the rock is going to sink deeper in some areas and not as deep in others. And then um, you're going to end up just leveling, grading, coating it more and more often with rock than you probably would. If you put a geotech, will disperse the weight a lot more evenly as you drive across it. And it keeps you from getting all those kind of low areas and high areas and stuff in the drive later.
2: Very interesting. Very interesting. So you kind of, covered um, leveling it out and and filling in some some uh, fine material to get it to to compact what about drainage are you always running this level or are you building the road higher in the center what do you what do you guys do for for drainage so you don't just have a wet sloppy mess there
1: so you whatever your road system by when it's done you want to build up a bit of a crown in it, and I don't usually crown, usually scrape it pretty flat or pretty level to put down the, the geotech or your base, and then you kind of crown it with the rock that you put on top of it. Okay. I mean, if it's going to be, like, daily driving of, you know, up to, like, one-ton pickups and stuff, and occasionally you're going to have, like, tandem or something come in and out or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you probably only need about five or six inches of CA6 over the top of a geotextile. If you're going to have, you know, a lot more, like, semi-traffic or something like that or or combines and big tractors and planters, like, you know, if it's going to be a major farm access road to get to your tillable fields and stuff, you might think about going with something a little bit more substantial than that, a little bit thicker base, uh, because it will need more inches of that compacted rock to disperse the weight of those machines without causing ruts or heaving in some spots. So... I mean, I haven't had any trouble with, with about a six-inch base on top of ours, and it's a kind of a mix. We don't have a lot of big, heavy equipment, but occasionally we do. Um, So okay. back to your, your question, whether or not you level it or whatever, if, if, you have, if you're building a roadway across the hillside and you're kind of cutting diagonally across and you got high ground on one side and a little bit lower ground on the other side, then you kind of have to cut in that hillside or cut in the roadway uh, a little bit more on the level you don't you know you want to be able to drive it even when it's icy or you got snow or whatever and not sliding off the side of the road so your road has to be somewhat level well you're probably going to need to create some sort of a ditch or a uh, water diversion channel on the uphill side and you know you can you can do that with a six-way blade on a dozer um you know, or even on a big, heavy skid steer machine, but, you know, probably a small dozer is the best tool for the job to build a roadway across the hillside like that. And once once you get the road, kind of the roadbed leveled and cut into it, you can come back with a mini if you need to, um, if you just want a really small channel, like the water, just the water that lands from the center line of the road to the uphill side is going to shed to the uphill side, and then hit the channel that runs alongside the road down to whatever their lowest spot is. And then maybe you put a tube under it there for the water to drain and get under it. You don't want water running off directly across the top of the road. It will eventually wash out or at the very least it'll cause big soft spots because you'll have a soggy saturated area under that part of the road. And uh, it'll just give you issues. So it's excellent advice. Yeah. Build it right. Uh, From the start, even if that means waiting another year and saving a little bit more money to do it, and over it doesn't take that long. I mean, I want to say long-term, but within three to five years, whatever extra money you spent, you will have saved. So the long-term dividends, if you're going to own the property for 20 or 30 or 40 years, if you're going to build a house there and it's going to be your forever home or something like that, uh, be smart enough to build those roadways the right way up front, and it will save you a ton of money later from fixing them and constant maintenance and whatever
2: so that that brings me to my next point, and we we mentioned a couple examples where this is quote unquote paid off for you uh, let's hear one of those examples or stories where having a successful and and quality you know infrastructure on your on your property or a client's property has has paid off
1: okay cool um so yeah first one of those that comes to mind is uh several years ago um, had a client who bought a really rugged strip mine farm, and you guys you guys familiar with what strip mine stuff looks like here in the midwest?
2: yeah, go ahead and, and hit it just for anybody who isn't
1: so so basically started out probably looking like a fairly flat farm ground and sometime you know in the early nineteen hundreds to mid nineteen hundreds um, they found coal buried within anywhere from 10 to 80 feet below the surface, and it was very accessible. So with just some dirt moving on the top, scrape off topsoil, they could expose these huge uh, beds of coal, and then they mine them out, surface mining, stripping it out, and they basically do it in long channels. So uh, ripping out coal anywhere from, like I said, 20 to 80 feet deep and stacking up the spoils or the furrows, the uh, unproductive stuff, in lines basically between these strips that they tear out the coal out of. When they're done with that kind of ground and have mined out all the coal or back, you know, and if it was still being done in like the 50s when people kind of quit using a lot of coal to heat their homes and whatever, um, they reclaimed all of that ground by smoothing off the tops of these furrows, bringing in topsoil, leveling some things, and they make amazing recreational properties because you end up with all the low areas that were strip-mined, are deep, clear water lakes, and then the furrows in between them are just like, it's unnatural topography. Extremely rugged, up and down, up and down, um, but long ridges, awesome bedding areas. You can have a 100-acre strip-mine farm, and it will feel like 300 acres because there's so much surface area packed into it. So tremendous wildlife potential, but very hard to access things throughout the property. And getting around strip mine farms is actually probably one of the biggest drawbacks or deterrents that keep a lot of people from buying one. It's like, well, yeah, it's a 200-acre farm, but, I mean, I can only get into probably 60 of it. And the rest of it (laughs) is like these furrows and islands and pinches, just, you know,
2: gnarly
1: stuff that big deer absolutely love, but really tough to hunt. So making access improvements on a farm like that is, I mean, adds tremendous value from usability standpoint and also resale. So back to the story. This guy, uh, this family, bought about a 200-acre farm and had me come in and look at it to do a consultation. And we looked at basically three different areas on three, the say the north, one central lake, really big, kind of a uh, lot of fingers to it and stuff, but one lake in the center of the property. And then – about a 60-acre chunk of timber in one corner of it, 60- or 80-acre chunk of timber below it, and then another 30 acres or so on the east side of it. And there was, like, no access whatsoever to get down the east side of the property and very little access. The only way to get to the south part of the property was to wind all the way through the middle of it along the lake and then come in the southwest side. So any deer that were on the south or east side of the lake knew when you were coming in on the north side of the lake, to come in and try to hunt that way. So, you know, that was like low hole in the bucket, you know, for me right off the bat was like you you need to build an access straight down your east side to get along that property boundary and be able to create some more pinch opportunities over there because you got a 30-acre sanctuary there where a lot of big deer are probably hanging out, and we found some really good sign in there, and it was like you got no way to get in there to hunt them without them knowing you. Uh, that you're there, and no way to get to a deer to haul it out of there, short of like paddling a canoe over to the bank and, you know, uh, rappelling down the edge of the lake <laughs> wall to get to, you know, to drag this deer out of there. Like, it would be an absolute nightmare. So um, so they liked the idea so much that they hired us uh, the next year to come in there and create that access trail down the whole east side we just used a mini excavator and a track skid steer to do it. It didn't take any giant equipment. It's just, it was so thick and there were multiple points where some of these furrows went all the way up almost to the, the property line. So it was like, you'd, you'd go 60 feet and then there's another hole that's 15 foot across and eight foot deep. And Jeez. then wow. go another 60 or 80 feet or a hundred feet. And there's another one. And it was like, so it was, it was gnarly. Uh, and took a lot of, like, strategic fill put in there and stuff. But, but the expense was not that huge. And, the I mean, it sounds like it would be overwhelming to somebody, but uh, we found some local cheap fill to put in there, um, just clean fill. A lot of it was, you know, clay brick or a little bit of concrete, and then a lot of uh, soil that another guy down the road had excavated out and was needing a place to go with it. So, we had them bring that stuff in, just truck it in, and dump it at the end of the lane. And then we used the skid steer and the mini to just place it, and dropping it, filling it, building the trail as we go, using the mini to rip out six, eight, 12-inch trees, fell them with a chainsaw, and you know, five, six foot off the ground. And then you can grab them with the, the hoe and kind of wiggle them loose and dig a little around and pop them out of the ground. And it took about a day and a half. And we made uh, about a quarter-mile trail all the way down the east side that let us get to – A couple of different uh pinches did a little bit of funneling uh with some hinge cuts and the mini to with the thumb to kind of stack some logs and stuff and block block a few trails and funnel them down into these two main trails and the guys were super nervous because by the time they called us to come and do that project it was not early in the spring or summer it was like july and they were like is it too late to do it for this season it was like well we can't get there until probably the last week of August. And they were, like, they were nervous. You know, they were like, oh, we should have called you in February or whatever. And I said, I, if it was me, I would still do it because, yes, we're going to have an intrusion, but it's going to be like two or three days tops. And then we're out of there, and it's still a month before the season even starts. And I would wait until probably the second, third, fourth week, fourth week maybe of October before I'm really hunting over one of those pinches. I said, I think you got time. Uh, and the deer that are bedded in there, even if that's been, you know, a buck's bedroom for the last four years, uh, if we come in and do something like that and then we're out of there, I think that deer is still going to be right back there pretty shortly afterwards. So, and they had a few good deer on trail camera, but they had no idea where they were spending any time on the property. Built that trail system. We finished it, I think, the first week of September. And the second week of October, I got a text from one of the, the brothers uh, that one of them had stuck a 165-inch deer in that funnel that we created out of that wow. pocket timber. And it was like – That's cool.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what we wanted to see happen. I didn't know that it was going to happen for them that quickly. But wow. that deer would have been impossible to hunt. And it obviously that's why it was hanging out where it was hanging out, because it was such a, a remote piece that was very hard to access, and it just knew, you know, I'm safe here. Well, going forward, I said, guys, for these spots to remain as productive as they are, you have to use that east trail when only when you have westerly winds. You have to keep that trail clean so that you're not crunching and busting through tall weeds and whatever when you're coming down that side to sneak into one of these pinches. Yep. The access is great initially, but if you aren't using it correctly or doing whatever minimal maintenance you need to be doing year to year, it deteriorates and it won't. Be as good of a deal for you in
2: the long run. but
1: um, no, that's that was, a that's uh, a
2: great point you brought up there because, I mean, a lot of guys will say, okay, I'll make the access trail, but might not consider where their wind is going and their scent cone is going when they use it, right? So it's like, I got this great trail, but the wind might be blowing, my, you know, my scent into my property versus the neighbors, and that'll flip the deer around, make them watch that access trail versus what they were doing before, and then you're kind of, you know, screwing yourself over.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yep,
2: great um, example. Though. I did the
1: same thing, almost the same thing on my home property probably probably six five six years ago. Oh, I've been six years ago now. Um, we had a deer on camera that was hanging out in a part of our farm that was still really tough to get to. I had no good way. I mean, I I had pretty much decided that was where. His, the heart of his core territory was, and I was only getting him coming and going on one camera out of our farm. Again, our farm's not that big, and I have multiple cameras out there, and if, you know, nine times out of ten when I catch him on a camera, it was on this one spot that was not easy to hunt. So I needed access to get to the part of the farm where he was hanging out, and this was was the last week of September, I think, when I'm, you know, really, like, honing in on this on my trail cameras, and I was like, it's too late to go in there and do that now and disturb the area this close to season. And I, I just kept, you know, for, like, a week, I was, like, back and forth struggling about this, and I'm like, this is this is the dilemma that so many of our landowners have, and they're like, uh, but am I doing more harm than good by doing this? And I was like, you know what? It's, uh, it is a gamble, but... Uh, If it doesn't pan out for me this year, I'm going to reap rewards from creating this trail for years and years to come. My kids are going to reap rewards from this trail. So it's worth doing either way. And I gambled on it in short term, uh, went in there, and I think it was actually like the bow opener. It was October 1st or so when I was actually in there with the equipment and cutting in this new trail, uh, threw in a little crossing on this ditch and made it so that I could get back across there and hung a ladder stand overlooking this this main uh, deer trail coming and going in and out of this really super thick bedding area. And I thought, okay, now I've, I've done the damage. Now I'm going to wait. And I waited about a month. It was around the 1st of October second of, or 2nd of November, I think, when I went in there and hunted it for the first time. And the very first morning that I hunted that set, uh, it was about 7.30 in the morning, and I heard something, looked over, and I watched the target buck get up out of his bed and he was maybe maybe 70 or 80 yards from my tree nice. stand and straight-up wind of where I was sitting. I mean, it was like, I mean, absolutely gorgeous, just type of scenario, right? So um, it, it paid off from the first set, and it was, uh, you know, it became a really productive spot after that. And I, I didn't end up killing that buck, but – I, the whole time, like, I'm sitting, I walked in in the dark, climbed in there, and I'm sitting, and I'm, like, I'm pretty confident in what I'm doing, but I'm still in the back of my head questioning, thinking, like, did I just screw up royally? Like, putting this, I mean, is that deer even really going to still even be bedding here after the damage I just did in here? And, uh, you know, he was absolutely, uh, it, like I said, minimal impact. You know, I, would, I wouldn't try to do something like that and then run in there the very next day and jump into a tree stand and hunt it. But if there's still a relatively short window of rest after you've done something like that, deer are curious animals. They'll come in and they'll check out the new trail. They'll check out your, uh, you know, the dirt work that you did or built a crossing or whatever. But usually I think within a week or two, even mature bucks in the area, they are using it. Like they don't, life goes on. You know, they're not going to completely avoid that area forever just because you built a new trail or road or something, uh, it's it's different. If you went in there and you cleared 20 acres of timber on a 100-acre farm, yeah, you could disturb things enough that that deer might not be back, at least not this season. But to punch in one trail here or there or something and then, you know, get in and out in the middle of the day with your equipment and not traipsing around or doing a lot of, you know, uh, hand activity – but I, I don't think you can get away with it. I have.
2: So another great example, I mean, you see that buck stand up after you've been sitting there that morning. I think that's the win right there, whether you shoot him or not. Um, that, that I is, absolutely feel that. That, that, yeah. awesome. that was the encounter
1: I was after, you know? Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, the rest
1: of it is up to me and just, you know, I guess luck of the situation and what direction that buck decided to head to after he got up out of his bed. Right. But to have uh, been able to build the crossing and the trail to get to the spot that I needed to be in uh, that particular morning and the deer was bedded that close when he got up, it was like, yep, that, I obviously gambled in it, I was right that it worked, that you could, you know, that can be done and not totally screw your whole season up because you blow your target deer out of the area, so...
2: Well, that kind of made me think of a, a question here when you said that, um, and the deer will start using it. I know the, the end game is think bigger, so whether a deer uses your your brand new trail or not, the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, but at the same time, how often are you seeing your deer come up your, your new access trail, smelling your ground scent, that sort of thing? I mean, I know you're considering this stuff, so... I guess, Yeah. how often is that happening? Is it part of the game? What do you do to avoid it? Maybe put a fence or a gate in there? I don't know.
1: Yeah, so it's really hard to keep deer off of these roadways, and a lot of people worry a lot about that. Um, something I'll go back to that I said earlier, and this is not this is not a huge revelation. You guys have probably heard other deer uh, gurus say something like this to this effect. A deer is always going to use the path of least resistance as long as they can do it without sacrificing their security. So creating a new trail that goes through part of your farm or to part of your farm uh, is going to be a lot of times the path of least resistance. But if it is exposed to one side, open to a field or something to that effect, um, if you create a tunnel through the middle of the brush, the deer are going to walk on it all day long. (laughs) I mean, you know, but if you create something like if I'm clearing the trail, let's say it's, it's timber and brush um, and we're tearing out these trees, I'm taking all these trees and basically like a lawnmower and spits it out to one side. I'm creating a windrow of these downed logs and trees and piles of brush and limbs and whatever, in some cases, even soil or whatever, if I'm leveling a hump or a low spot and, you know, building a berm or a wall of the vegetation that you just cleared against the timber side or against the side, the, the sanctuary side or whatever, creating a wall so that you are able to use this trail. And it's, it's a barrier as you're ingress, egress, or whatever you're going back and forth on this trail. Even the deer that are bedded in that uh, body of timber, they might hear your ranger or gator or whatever going by but they're not coming unglued. They're not jumping up out of their skin and running off to the whole farm. They usually are just going to hang tight, and they'll let you pass because they'll know with that barrier between you and them. And we talked about this in the edge feathering stuff. They will uh, know that there's an intrusion happening, somebody's driving past there, but they also know that for you to get to them, you got to make it through that wall. You've would to stop, get off the machine, and come climbing through all that brush and over that giant log jam or whatever. And then they will have plenty of time to move and put distance between you and them. So deer feel that sense of security because of that barrier. It That very thing is also what generally keeps them from walking on the outside of that barrier down that trail during daylight because they feel too exposed. They would much rather walk on the inside and, and use their interior trails for that sort of thing. Now, if you put uh, – I have cameras that are on pinches that come to those main arteries, my main north-south trail, or, you know, the main trail that goes east and west but on the south side or east and west on the north side of the farm, we have trail cameras on there. Except during the peak of the rut, 98% of the traffic on those trails is after shooting hours or before dawn. Okay. And they they tend to maintain their security and move around on the interior of the farm and then come out and hit those trails right at or right before you know it's uh it's daylight so at least the mature deer i mean you'll have some doe groups and stuff that'll come down but those are usually not the ones that bust you as much anyway or young bucks you know but the the wise older bucks tend to use their interior trail systems now so i don't usually hunt right on top of those main arteries because of what i just said i just you know the buck that I'm after is not really going to be using that trail until it gets dark. So why am I sitting there waiting for him to show up, and I'm not going to see him until after it's time for me to get down from the tree stand? So I use those trails to get in and out, and then I will head just into the edge of the timber and hunt over an interior trail that kind of parallels mine, parallels uh, what the you know the trail that I created or where that blocking is. And that's the trail that that buck is going to normally be on during daylight, early morning, late know. afternoon, evening, whatever. And they'll mill around in kind of a staging area that's within the body of timber or within the sanctuary until close to dark, and then they head out through that funnel or that gauntlet that I created. So, um, you know, it is it is a toss-up, I guess, if you're saying, like, well, if if you had no access into an area – uh, and you blaze this roadway across in there to get a machine or be able to drive back there and get alongside a piece of property, aren't, aren't you cutting your own throat because the deer are going to now be using that trail, and that's going to be a major problem for you? That's not really been my experience. Now, if, you're, if you are creating just like a walking path with like a DR trimmer mower or something and trying to make some sort of a sneak trail for yourself, the deer are going to use that, and they're going to use it a lot. So if that is your access to get to a tree stand or whatever, I would say do whatever you can, create some blocking, fell a couple of saplings or something to make it so that that trail doesn't go anywhere except to your tree stand and it just otherwise dead ends and don't let, you know, don't give deer a reason for that to become their new favorite trail to walk on because otherwise, yeah, you're sitting in your tree stand and every deer that comes and goes walking past you is going to be right on your scent track, right?
0: So, for sure.
1: um, The bigger roadways, though, they're more intimidating to deer um, to use during daylight. So, you're safer to walk down those and then hop off of that and shortly after climb right up into a sand or blind or whatever uh, and let the deer pass by in front of you on the interior side away from your roadway.
0: So, Chase, on that note of access, are you doing any type of additional? Uh, work to try to block like screening or putting hinge cuts or anything to block visual barriers when you're making these access routes to stands.
1: Yeah, I mean absolutely. Um, you know, the more of that you do, the the less chance that you're going to get busted getting in and out of it. Now, I would say having an access trail uh, along the property and then hiking directly in 50 yards or 40 or whatever and climbing into a stand without you know, just maybe it's wide open timber in there and there's really no, nothing to differentiate the path that you walked in on from wherever the deer can walk. That's still better than climbing through brush and making a lot of noise coming in, uh, and then trying to climb into your tree stand. So the noise factor is one part of stealthy ingress, egress. Scent factor is another one. Um, and visual screening is the third element. You know, if you can build right. a trail system and then couple that with a tree stand or blind access that gives you the trifecta, fantastic. But any one of those three boxes that you check is a step in the right direction and will sure. truly help on some level with success. So, I mean, yeah, on my on my home farm here, we definitely have some stands that probably still need some more work that way with some screening and stuff. Um, or that I did work initially on eight or nine years ago, and now I'm probably due to go back in and freshen that up or tighten some things up, or now there's a deer trail that moved closer than what I wanted it to be, and I need to, you know, reposition the layout around the tree stand to give you the right shot opportunities. But, um, initially when we're putting one in for the first time, yeah, we put a lot of thought into that and trying to use whatever structure is available there, um, if you're hanging a stand in a nice white oak tree and you look around and in a 20 yard radius you got half a dozen uh, eight inch hackberries and a pretty decent sized elm tree and some other low value low quality trees that if I were doing TSI in there I'd probably thin and cut them out anyway. I'll go ahead and drop a few of those and either cut them up into manageable pieces and drag them around by hand or use the skid steer with a grapple and. Uh, fell them, move them, or hinge cut it, and then use the bucket to push it or swing it where I want it to kind of build a wall or a barrier around. Uh, so when I draw this out on a map, it would look like I've got an east and west trail going along my south side and then a couple trails that come off of that into the north uh, or headed north into the timber, and then almost kind of a bubble around that from where the barrier, the wall is that's alongside my ingress egress road. And then that brush wall might even come in and kind of come around the face of where I'm going to sit in that tree stand. So any deer that's walking on the interior side of that brush wall, they kind of get pushed out around in front of me and then back to the funnel wherever I have an opening created. So it's, I mean, in an ideal scenario, ideal world, that's what it would look like. And we generally go for that. Now the closer you get to achieving it, you know, the better off you're going to be, but you know, I live in the real world too, so a lot of my stands don't exactly look that way. <laughs> but that's the goal.
2: No, that makes perfect sense. I can I can picture it perfectly. And then on the on the other side of the bubble, which would be the interior of your property, are you, if you will, reverse bubbling? I'm going to confuse everybody here by by pinching them back down within 20, 30 yards for your your archery range or your your bow shot, right? So you're actually Going to kind of reverse push them back south towards your stand location as you're pushing them towards the stand location from the from the south to the north again. Yeah. does that make any sense at all? If, if you're in,
1: yep. If you're in pretty wide open timber on the interior uh, of a piece like that, where you got that kind of stand location we just described, uh, a lot of times I would do just I, I almost uh always just kinda of call it a windrow windrow blocking. Sure. And we'll just domino some trees. You guys follow Jim Ward? Yeah. Seen, oh yes. yeah. He he's posted a lot of uh, videos to Facebook when they do stuff like this and it's pretty fun to watch. Because it's like you'll go through and you'll hinge eight, ten, a dozen, fifteen maybe trees all kind of in a line and then you push the back one down and they just all and fall all down in a row, right? So we do that kind of stuff on the interior of the property if there's a, a decent quantity of low quality trees in there I mean if it's really well stocked with good quality trees and you're just not we're not just uh, arbitrarily cutting whatever tree just happens to be there to make it fall we don't want to ruin the timber just because we're trying to move a deer but uh, a lot of times we'll go through a piece that'll have a lot of hedge or it'll have some uh, some ash and elm and some uh, maybe it's a sugar maple or something that we're just not too excited about anyway from wildlife standpoint. And we'll go through and hinge a big line of those, maybe 80 or a hundred yards long that kind of becomes a barrier that deer would just prefer to walk around the end of. If you make it too long, they're just going to find a way to go through it. They're not going to walk 200 yards out of their way just to, you know, avoid having to climb through a tangle. But for a little bit of a stretch, yeah, they will. So what that does is say, say from that bubble that you're sitting in, you've got, you know, a 30-yard effective range right out in front of you. So starting at that 30 yards and going another 70 or 80 yards or so, uh, we'll do a domino windrow, like a brush wall of just felled trees. And then at the end of that, we just kind of let it be again. But basically what you've done is you've taken your 30-yard uh, window there, and you've extended that for almost 100, 120 yards or whatever into the timber, so that any deer that's moving parallel to your brush fall east and west or whatever in this case, uh, they're gonna see that or just naturally move around that. Most of the trails that cross through that area will all kind of merge together and come through your 20 or 30 yard gauntlet, and it, it basically you're you're taking a lot of times you're taking three or four trails that the deer are using and pinching them down to one, and I mean, yeah. you just quadrupled your odds of having a, a shot uh, opportunity or a close encounter with the deer by doing that.
2: And that, that windrow that you're making, say your your stand is facing to the north and your 30 yards is out in front of you to the north, at that 30-yard mark you're starting and you're running that windrow straight north and south, correct? You're not going east and west.
1: Um, you can i mean we have I've done it a couple times where we actually made like a v and kind yeah, of go okay. northwest with one part of it and south uh, I love it. you know southwest with the other and just kind of like uh, bring it like a wedge or a crescent shape like a moon towards that center point, but it depends on the topography i mean it's sure. you know we're talking in hypotheticals like imagining this timber that just doesn't have a whole lot of terrain or something to try to follow so. Depends on where your stand is yeah. situated, whether there's any natural topography that already kind of gathers deer there, whether one line directly away from you is the way to go, or whether creating, you know, a wedge or something that brings deer in a little bit closer to you. There's, there's no one-size-fits-all kind of answer to that. I think you just kind of have to figure out how the ground lays and what trees you've got available to cut, and then figuring out how you can use what's available on that particular site to help condense some of those travel routes and bring them within bow range or whatever.
2: Exactly. Thanks for, thanks for you know, getting into that. I know, guys, we talked about that a lot on episode 23 as well, so I urge you to go back and, and listen to that one. Um, it's all coming back to me now, Chase, how we kind of talked about that with edge feathering and, and creating some blockades, and I love it, man. That's awesome. Is there yeah, anything we've... Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, no, you're fine. Go ahead.
2: I was just gonna say, is, is there anything that we missed today that um, you want to make sure we hit, or uh, if not, I got one more question for you, and we'll we'll get to get get to getting here. Okay, go ahead. All right. So back when you were on last, we didn't really ask this question, but we like to ask all of our guests now what your favorite tree is. And it could be for habitat, could be for hunting, this could be whatever you want, but we get some pretty cool answers and um, learn a lot, actually, from the question.
1: Yeah. So, my favorite tree is the swamp white oak. And uh, it it would be different if I were in a different part of the Midwest, probably, or a different part of the country, but in sure. my area, um, swamp white oak kind of rules, I think, in my opinion, for the best best of both worlds for... Uh, what has or will produce marketable lumber someday and what has in this area the most attractive hard mass uh, of any native tree. I'm a native guy. There are some better trees out there that you could plant for hard mass uh, chestnuts come to mind that would be more attractive than what a swamp white oak is. But I mean unless we're going to restore the American chestnut, I'm just really not into the Chinese chestnut thing. I mean, it's, uh, I love the idea when I'm working on a property or especially my own property of making it look like it would have or could have before we came in and really disrupted things. Sure. So, uh, Swamp White Oak is a massive long-lived tree that got really gnarly structure to them that just kind of, you look into the canopy of a Swamp White Oak and it almost looks like a lightning strike in a dark sky. Branches don't go straight. They just zigzag and jag it and turn every which direction. It almost doesn't even make sense why they do that. But it is a it is a cool tree, makes an awesome turkey roost. Uh, it's got thick bark, so it's uh, very fire resistant. You can burn through a timber with swamp white oaks and they will thrive. Um, they call them swamp whites because they do well in, in low areas with wet feet where most white oaks don't. But a swamp white oak will go, grow just as well up on a hilltop where it's dry. So they're awesome. I've planted a bunch of them um, here on my own farm, and we plant a ton of them for clients. Take longer to get going and get up there producing some uh, some acorns, but acorn is huge and has really low tannic acid, so they're pretty attractive, and deer love them.
2: Awesome answer. Yes, sir. That makes perfect sense, and uh, they sure are beautiful trees. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, well, Chase, I just want to thank you for your time today, sir, and let's, let's wrap this up with plugging, you know, a couple of your your businesses uh, and how people can find you and, and follow along with you if they'd like to.
1: Sure. Well, appreciate it. Again, glad to be on. Um, hope any of this stuff is helpful. But if anybody's got more questions about uh, how I do any of this stuff or want to just chat about it or whatever, they can give me a buzz or PM me through Facebook. Um, you can find me in my personal profile on Facebook or Dogwood Lane Management. Um, is also one of our Facebook pages, contact information on there, uh, link to our website that'll get you a place to email us through our about or contact page. Um, or you can, if you're interested in land, whether you're, you know, got a piece that you've improved that you're ready to look at and talk about selling or you're trying to buy something, uh, Chase Burns with, uh, Illinois Land Guys. Uh, if you look that up in Facebook, you'll surely find my profile. Um, contact us through there or through the landguys.com website. My information is all on there too. So uh, glad to help anybody who's looking at improving their own ground or looking at buying or selling some ground or anything like that. So uh, pleasure to be on with you guys and I love your program. Love the show. Um, Really appreciate you having me back on.
2: Thanks, Chase. Yeah, thank you, Chase. And, uh, I hope you can come back on in the future. So thank you. It's been great. And I urge the listeners to check out both these episodes with with Chase. And, um, again, great catching up, buddy.
1: All right, guys. Take care.
2: Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal, we can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts. Um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plot. Realtree, United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become Better Habitat Managers.
0: Wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8 30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Oh, that's awesome! Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lift. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.